you're in a new market where people don't even know that they need the solution. You're, they, don't, they have the problem, but they don't know the solution yet. Um, they might not even know the problem they have, but they do have the problem. Then Google searches aren't going to tell you anything, you know? Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also quite simply to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. I've learned something quite interesting recently. I've learned that Larry Page, who's the, one of the co-founders of Google, once told a room full of uh, marketing hires that their profession is built on their ability to lie. Um, I've also heard recently many Silicon Valley pundits saying that marketing is what you do when your product or service sucks. And my guest today in episode number 16 of everyonehatesmarketers.com is Dan Kaplan and he's fighting for marketing to be great again for the first time. He believes that Silicon Valley has a serious bias against marketing, which makes a lot of startups fail. So we had a very interesting chat about it, and we're going through the reasons why most startups fail, and it's mainly due to weak marketing foundations. And we're going through what you need to do instead to, to make sure that your startups succeed. One word of advice Around halfway through uh, the audio, the quality of, of Dan's audio is quite, it's quite bad for some reason. We, I couldn't pinpoint the reason why it was that bad during the recording. So we tried our best to, to, to fix it, but if it's still too bad for you, then I suppose you could read the, the transcript on the blog post that we will add uh, soon enough and wait also for the, for the next episode. So my apologies for that, but we tried our best. All right, as usual, have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Louis. It's great to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. So instead of telling uh, the audience who you are uh, and all this kind of stuff, I'm going to start straight away with a question uh, that is, you know, that question I wanted to ask you for a while. And what pisses you off the most? Is it a famous VC that says that marketing is what you do when your product or service sucks? Or is it when Larry Page from Google say that the marketing profession is just built on an, an, an ability to lie? What's the, the one that pisses you off the most? And you have to choose one, by the way. Okay, well, it's, um, you know, that, uh, I don't want to be cornered into choosing one because, to be honest, pissing me off is not really the uh, – is, anger is not really the emotion that it arises in me. Um, there is sort of a frustration and sort of an ego-driven um, – like, hey, that's what I do. Don't call it stupid, right? Don't, call it, don't, don't demean what I do. Don't demean my profession, but that's more you're tied up in ego, and I'm and I really try to distance myself from that ego as much as I can in my personal life, and I don't always succeed in that, but that is really important to me. Um, it, what it really does is makes me sad because the consequences, and 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 it really it's it's the 
if, if I have to pick one, it's when people say marketing is what you do when your product sucks. Um, because, and, and it makes me sad, be, not, it, it's anger, it, it makes me angry first, but then when I dig into it, it makes me sad. And the reason it makes me sad is that the consequences of that belief waste so much time, money, energy, technical brilliance, um, creative brilliance, all of this incredible energy that could be uh, deployed for dramatically more impactful things goes to waste when people don't understand their market, don't build products that the market wants, or build products and target them at the wrong market. And a great example of the latter is Google Glass, which to me had tremendous potential as an early stage product for utilitarian use cases in medicine, in industry, and things like that. And they decided that it was the right idea to go after fashionable use cases, like a, a high fashion item for consumers. And that's just, and, and the product died as a result. And Google, really, Google's reputation, Google X's reputation, all the people inside of that who worked on that saw their time and energy go to waste. And the people who championed it, while I don't have in, in details there, probably took a reputational hit too. And that to me is just a tremendous waste when this product has trans transformed, this core concept of augmented reality has transformed to potential and it goes to waste when they either focus on the wrong market or build the wrong features or any of the above sort of things. And so to me, that's really sad. You know, there's, there's of course the ego component where I'm angry when people demean what I do and it, and it makes it harder to be, to be successful at what I do. But really it's, it's, it's about the waste and, and how much technical ingenuity um, when there's so many problems that the world has that can be solved by technology or addressed by technology to see people spending all this money, time and resources and, and human resources on products that fail because they didn't think because they dismiss marketing or don't think of marketing early on. It's really painful to me. I've discovered you as we're reading an article you posted about the Silicon Valley bias against marketing, which was fantastic. So that's why I'm talking to you today. That's why I really want you to, uh, to get your view on, on marketing and SaaS in particular. So sure. you founded your first startup more than 10 years ago. Then you went on to work with Salesforce, Twilio, Asana. So, and now you're consulting in the, the heart of Silicon Valley. So yeah, I think you are, you know, you're part of those people who've been part of all of those companies and you can understand the way they are thinking about marketing and therefore you can understand what's wrong with, with this particular, uh, with the Silicon Valley and, and their view on marketing. So we'll talk about all of that in the marketing part of the podcast. But first of all, I'd like to go back to before all of that, before all of those experience in marketing and, and before your first startup. So you might answer this question by, you know, the experience you had uh, with those startups. But the, the first question I wanted to ask you is what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Wow, that's a good question. I, the hardest thing I've ever done ever. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I'd say the hardest thing was abandoning journalism and finding my way into a new career that aligned with what I really cared about and believed in. And to be honest, that's still an ongoing journey. Actually, in 2016, end of 2016, after really a long struggle to align what I thought spiritually and emotionally and intellectually was really ultimately compelling and valuable to me personally, And what I was doing with my life and the type of energy and the types of things I was putting into the world, finding that alignment has been an ongoing struggle ever since I decided that, that my career as a magazine journalist was a dead end um, because of the incredible damage that was coming very soon to the industry, the magazine industry in 2005 and 2006. So back when I was 17 years old, right, I, my, my whole vision for myself was I'm a writer 
and my job in the world is to help the world, this is obviously grandiose 17-year-old talking, help the world understand the truth of what's happening in the world, right? And that's a huge, big, big thing. But I really believed at the time that really great writing, thinking, and reporting could help the world make better decisions, help, help, wor- help people who make, make big decisions in the world make better decisions for the world and make individuals make better decisions for themselves. And that was when I was 17 years old, so obviously a lot of naivety there. Um, but I really held on to that belief throughout college. And, and, you know, I was a history major in college. I studied military history. And I really thought that I was going to spend my whole life writing long-form magazine articles that were 10,000 words long and longer and books about pretty much anything I thought was interesting, ranging from technology to culture to politics, whatever. And two things really hit me hard that changed my perspective. And I don't want to get too hard into politics here, but the first one was the 2004 re-election of George W. Bush. And um, it's not because I hate Republicans or hate George W. Bush. It's not that at all. It was really that there were two completely diverging realities of people who supported, and that election was between uh, George W. Bush for re-election and John Kerry as the Democratic candidate. And what I found really disillusioning at that time was that there was a big survey done before that, and I, and I don't remember the name of it exactly, a big poll done by a, rel- a reputable polling agency that looked at the, the opposing, I think the title of it was the, the opposing realities of Bush and Kerry supporters. And it basically said that on major issues where the facts, quote unquote, the facts were abundantly clear, where there was not really debate about the truth about the matter, the perceptions of reality were completely different based on partisanship. And so to make that concrete, a large majority of Bush supporters believed that the, the entire world had supported our invasion of Iraq, that we'd found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, that bin Laden and, uh, and Saddam Hussein had direct connections, et cetera. All these things that were completely contradicting what was actually true. And when that, when I just, when that, when that came out and then Bush went on to win the election, it really made me believe that the truth didn't really matter, that, that being a journalist would have no impact on history, um, that, that any journalism, no matter how good or quality, couldn't change minds because people's minds were already made up. And so that was the first blow. The second blow was sort of looking at the internet and seeing how the bit, and this is early days, this is before the Huffington Post even came out, but seeing how the internet was going to change the model for journalism and uh, make both reduce attention spans and make the business model for the type of journalism I really love to do, which is this really in-depth one to three months long reporting before you even write the article to produce a single article. And I just saw the business model for that was going to die. And making the transition from I'm no longer going to be a journalist um, that I'd been planning on for like the last eight years to now what do I do? What's going to actually fulfill me? Um, was a really brutal journey. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And so you've, t- you've taken the decision. And what was the first big action you took? What was the first job you took after that? So I actually, strangely enough, this is funny how life works. I was on a plane to a friend's wedding party at Lake, in Lake Tahoe. Um, and I was, on a, I was on a plane and literally sitting next to me was someone I'd known from college, um, but hadn't really known. We'd played basketball together. He was friends with a bunch of my friends, but we weren't really close friends. And we ended up sitting together and talking about the future of the world and humanity. And it turned out that a lot of our ideas about the risks to civilization and to um, humanity and, and, and the opportunity to create abundance for the world were really aligned. And um, he was an engineer. He'd been in the engineering school at Penn. And we decided to start a company um, together. So literally, I'd been in journalism and decided to start a company and started on it right there. And that company was a total disaster of a failure. We, uh, we could never 
find a, you know, I didn't really, I, I had been a journalist. I knew nothing about marketing at the time. I knew a little bit about tech, but very little, you know, relatively little compared to what I know now. And the idea that from that, ba- from that position would be a good place to start a consumer facing company was probably pretty naive. Now, that's not to say that nobody can do that, but it wasn't the, we, we never found the right fit. And, you know, we got to about 50, 60,000 users, but for a consumer facing company, that just doesn't, that doesn't get you anywhere. And so we ended up shutting that company down after a couple of years. And I actually went back into journalism and I went to uh, a, the early days of VentureBeat. I went to a tech blog. Um, and this was like the early days of VentureBeat. At this time, it was just the, who is now the founder and CEO, Matt Marshall, writing all himself. And me and this guy, Eric Eldon, who went on to write for TechCrunch and now runs Hoodline, were the first two writers and first two, non, first two non-founding writers. And at VentureBeat, you know, I learned a ton about a lot of different areas of tech. From, from going from having a general high-level view of what was going on in tech to a ground-floor view when venture capitalists and entrepreneurs would take my phone calls. You know, I interviewed Ev Williams um, in the first six months of Twitter, that kind of thing. That was amazing, right? It just gave me great access. But it also confirmed for me that the business model of journalism was really not the one that supported the type of writing I wanted to do. You know, I had to write three to four posts a day. Um, there was no depth. I couldn't really, I, I, you know, calling people to interview them was something I did, but it just didn't make sense to, to, to do that and produce the volume. And so it really confirmed for me that that the model that, uh, that I was afraid was going to happen was happening and that um, the page view driven model based on how many clicks you can get to a headline um, was going to drive the future, the near future of journalism. And I needed to get, a, get out of it. And I really did not want to do public relations work, not because I have anything against PR, I don't, but because I've been on the other side of that fence. I'd been a journalist and I'd had my inbox inundated with pitches that didn't, weren't really relevant to me. And I didn't want to be doing any of that stuff. And I didn't know because everyone I knew who was leaving journalism at the time or had left journalism recently had gone into public relations work. And I wanted no part of that. And so I didn't know what there was. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about product marketing. I didn't know what other opportunities there were for people who knew how to write and tell stories, but didn't want to do PR. And so that transition also was very rough. And like I said, it was a very, it was a multi-year transition from I'm not doing journalism to here. I'm actually doing what I'm meant to be doing. And the next thing I did was work at the first product market. The first marketing job I got was at Salesforce. And that was my first exposure to what a great, what great marketing was, what marketing was in general. And to get that job, I spent about a year and a half reading everything I could about. This is right when HubSpot was getting started. So I learned everything about what they were doing, inbound marketing. Um, I read a ton of copywriting material. I learned as much, but I still didn't know much about product marketing. And when I got my first job at Salesforce, the way I got it was I looked at their website for a product. The job was for um, their new product, Chatter, which was a Yammer competitor, which I think still exists. It's a, it's an, it's, it's a part of Salesforce um, itself. And I looked at their website, and I basically made a presentation that explained what was wrong with the website from the copy and design perspective. And then I literally made mocked up my own version of a website. Um, here's what I would do differently. Mocked the whole thing up, made like four, a four-page website. Even did a fake video testimonial where I interviewed a friend um, who pretended to be a Chatter customer, interviewed him about the pains he was experiencing before Chatter and, and the results he was getting once he used Chatter, and sent that all to Salesforce. And that got me my interview and then eventually my job at Salesforce. I think that's a good insight, first of all, if any of the listeners of the show are actually looking for a job, is to, to go beyond just posting your CV and your, you know, your, your letter and a few words and actually going all the way into like, how can I make them want me? How can I add value and make them just, there's no choice but to hire me. So I think that's a great one. And you've mentioned like, you've been through a lot because I think 
as a as a person, I I don't know you personally just yet, but I can feel that you are a contrarian in a sense that you don't <laughs> like you don't like necessarily the mainstream views, and you like to question it at least. And not only you question it, but you also like to take decisions and actions against it once you've you know settled on a view, which is something I admire as well. So outside of those events, those two events that kind of summarize your career and why you're here uh, today. Is there any particular event that made you who you are today? Okay. <laughs> so so you mean personally, not professionally? Well, why are you so such a contrarian like me? Why do you like why okay. do you think you like to you know to question everything? That's a very interesting question. So that that, that is a big existential question. So my dad, uh, if I had to say like the biggest thing, it would probably be the influence of my own father. Um he was trained as you know, he he went to college to be a uh, physicist. And um, he, had been, he was a kid from the Bronx, a Jewish kid from the Bronx. And this is like the Bronx in the 50s and 60s, a working class Jewish kid. As he likes to say now, his family came in and, quote unquote, ruined the neighborhood. Right. <laughs> this was like a middle class um, Irish neighborhood that the Irish families had moved out of sort of Hell's Kitchen in New York in the 30s and 40s um, and moved to this what was kind of not, not exactly suburban, but um, a more peaceful, quiet neighborhood um, that was very different from the sort of gang ridden violence of Hell's Kitchen. And along come these unwashed masses of Eastern European Jews and their children into this neighborhood um, in the 50s and 60s, in the, in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, his family ruined the neighborhood as far as the, 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 the middle class Irish people were concerned. And, he, and so he, he, had, he has these remarkable street smarts combined with this ferocious um, analytical mind that comes from, you know, he's not a mathematician, but he's got enough of a grounding in mathematician that he was able to get a undergraduate scholarship to... Columbia to start to be a physics major. And I think his sophomore year or junior year, you know, he was doing these page long equations and sort of realized that he didn't have the talent, the fundamental mathematical talent to be an extraordinary physicist. And for him, anything less than extraordinary wouldn't be good enough. So he could be, you know, a decent physicist, but not an extraordinary physicist. He couldn't be in the top five to 10 physicists in the world. Right. And that was that. So, so he literally dropped out of school. He lost his scholarship. He fell out of his classes and I think took a year or two to come back, but then came back and did a philosophy major. And, and um, this was the time that um, there's sort of a few schools of, 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 of philosophy taking hold in the, in the liberal arts departments of major universities. There's sort of the postmodern deconstructionist philosophies, mostly represented, but, you know, originating from France and, um, you know, Foucault and that. And then there was sort of the analytic philosophy that it comes from more, a more classical tradition um, and updates it for the sort of modern world. And those are very diametrically opposed philosophies in my, in my view. And he came from the analytic view, which is very much about to the point where way beyond what I've ever been able to accomplish in terms of how, how to think about things and even would want to. But his view is like every single sentence, word and construction of an idea, his view and training and approach to thinking has been to dissect it to the absolute core to see if it holds up to philosophical rigor. And and almost to the point, you know, he brings sort of the mathematical mind to the study of philosophy. So his view is like, is this true? And and what are all the counterexamples that would make it not true? So it's like first principles, right? The first principles. First principles, very, yeah. He wouldn't call it that, but yes, first principles are he like first principles would be very important to him. And you know, it can be very it can be very maddening if you try to explore a complicated philosoph philosophical problem from that perspective. The trolley problem, which has sort of come back into 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 view with the um, self-driving car question, you know, how, to, how does a self-driving car faced with an, an, an accident can't avoid decide which accident to, to drive into, right? Does it drive into the, 
um, pedestrians on the street that only kills one person, or does it crash into the cars and maybe kill three people, right? And that's like this big question that no one has, and, and people think they have good answers to it, but when you actually dive into it, if you ask analytical philosophers to answer it, no one has, you know, that is a very frustrating question for anyone who takes, takes analytical philosophy seriously. And so that extraordinarily rigorous approach to dissecting ideas for whether or not they hold up to scrutiny um, I was raised in that environment, and it can be extremely challenging and frustrating as a child, especially as an adolescent, male or female, with you know their own views, their own t- uh, their own views about the world, which probably have no grounding in reality, just perception. Um, to have a father whose whose training and view on life is that everything has to be dissected for credibility or not, to have that kind of voice and um, to have a voice at all in that environment. But I did learn from that how incredibly, how basically. None of us know anything. And, and the more we think we know, the less we actually know. And that is something that he drills into my head this, my whole life. And, you know, I, I, my, view on, my view on believing things is that, you know, I'm, I, I differ from him a little bit that I'm more passionate and emotional about things. But my views are almost always strongly, held, uh, strongly felt but loosely held. So I am always looking for reasons that what I believe is false. Um, and I think that it, and also to categorize my knowledge, you know, I think, I think one of the exercises that that we as a culture and, and people in general don't do enough is to categorize their knowledge. Is this a fact? Is this a theory or is it a complete fantasy? And as we've seen in the last election in the United States, you know, fact, fantasy and, and theory don't really seem to mean anything to a lot of people. Like things that are blatant fantasies get categorized as facts and things that are theories that may or may not be true get categorized as fantasies or facts. And, you know, no one's spending the time to categorize their knowledge. And I really believe that's important to actually getting towards the truth. So, it's not that I reject all mainstream wisdom. It's that I believe it's really important to question it because people hold on to things that aren't true for a whole variety of reasons. Some are self-interested, some are self, some are ego protection, and some are just that they don't know better. And that's important. You know, that can be very destructive when when enough people believe things that are crazy or just or just wrong. So you see, that's why I'm asking this question, because I knew you had a good answer to that. Um, so we're going to blame your father to be that, uh, that <laughs> yeah, contrarian. But it's, uh, it's my father's fault, yeah. Yeah, obviously, it's always, it's always his parents' fault. Um, right, <laughs> let's, let's move on to, to marketing more in particular now. And okay. what I'd like to do today is really to try to give the listeners some actionable tips, so really genuinely some stuff they could take away today and implement in their business uh, okay. to, make, to increase leads and, and increase sales and help help your okay. business um, grow. So first of all, quickly, what's your definition of marketing? How would you define it briefly? So there's no way to define it briefly, unfortunately. One of the big problems that I see, you know, one of the big reasons that this bias against marketing exists, I think, is that the definition of marketing is so poorly understood and not agreed upon by anybody um, generally, right? And so when Sam Altman of Y Combinator says that uh, we tell our founders to avoid marketing and P- marketing for as long as possible, and then goes on to talk about how you know PR is not going to get you create business for you. He's basically conflating marketing and PR. And then when Fred Wilson writes that post saying marketing is what you do when your product sucks, and then talks about um, customer acquisition, how you know that came that that post was inspired by talking to a founder who had set aside money when he was raising funds for a customer acquisition budget, and he said everyone needs a marketing budget. And he said you don't do marketing. Marketing is what you do when your product sucks. He's conflating marketing and customer acquisition um, and marketing and advertising. And, and those are very different things, right? To me, public relations, PR, sort of getting the press to write about you and talk about you is a tactic or a component of marketing, but it is far from the whole thing. To me, 
marketing is the fundamental thing. And marketing is there's a whole lot of disciplines in marketing. But to me, for me, my my definition of marketing, my what I think the most important version of marketing is understanding in as much depth as possible the fundamental needs, desires, goals, problems, and challenges of the people in the market you're trying to address. And really having an understanding of that. No, and, and obviously, that's, that's where the foundation of it is. Understanding who the people, um, the needs and motivations of the people you're trying to sell to and market to, um, and then creating both a product and a series of assets that you can, uh, a series of assets to turn that um, innate, that, that sort of latent market demand into channel it into a uh, demand for a specific product or service. Um, so it's, it's sort of a long way of saying like building something that the market wants is the foundation of, is one of the things you do when you're a great market. One of the foundations of great marketing. Um, I love to, I love to disagree with you, but I agree with you. Right. Okay. And that, that's how I define it as well. I usually say, you know, marketing is about understanding people. Once you understand people, yeah. then you have the right foundation to do the rest. So I completely yes. agree. Um, so what happens in Silicon Valley at the, at the minute is that, and even in the world in general, like it's not only Silicon Valley and the tech world, but it's a lot of issue in the tech world in particular is that people devalue, you know, marketing, right? So we mentioned a few examples and what you're saying in your article as well is that tech companies are not really great at marketing anyway uh, because of this bias. So can you give me one or two examples? Of people who aren't great at marketing? Mm-hmm. Of, of companies that, are, that were complete failure. You, you, started, you talked about Google Glass, which I think is yep. a marketing failure. Yes. What other products or services or, or companies come to mind? <laughs> I don't want to call people out too much for like, you know, bombing their companies. I think that would, I think that would, that would not serve me well. To uh, just call people out for totally failing, um, specifically, you know. But you know, I think I think there there are plenty of examples of products, and I put them in my post that created by companies that are great companies and have are staffed with extraordinarily bright people that, despite that, still created products that the market didn't want or marketed them badly, even if the market did want them. And I put a point to a lot of them in the post. And so for the big company in the big company world, you know, you have Facebook Home which was this huge ambition that Facebook had to basically, A, either build a phone itself, not really build a phone, but use HTC to sort of build a Facebook-branded phone, or, um, which was a brilliant piece of strategy in some ways, get a, you know, be, be installed as a layer on top of Android um, that basically added Facebook as one of the core features of Android. And that's, in some ways, that's a brilliant strategy, right? Building a phone is really expensive, it's really risky. The likelihood of getting you know, worldwide penetration with a single branded phone or even a range of branded phones when Android already is dominating sort of market share, the market share story is, you know, unlikely to succeed. But the idea that so many people love Facebook, so many people use Facebook and Facebook could actually install itself as a core part of the operating system through the app store was a brilliant piece of strategy. The problem is nobody wanted what they actually built. Installing Facebook so it's like a launcher on your phone and, you know, puts little chat heads for messaging on your phone. Turns out that people don't want that. And when Facebook announced this product, they're like, this is the next version of Facebook. And then, you know, a year later, it's basically gone. Um, and that's a good example of like this huge ambition, all this energy and time. They spent years trying to figure out how to attack Android. And then when they did, it was kind of a flop. So w what could have they done differently to avoid this flop? 
That's a hard question because their ambitions were so big, right? They wanted to basically run and do an end run around Google's control of the Android platform and install themselves between basically Google and the user. And doing that is a massive challenge, but the, you know, the, and it's an open question if they could have even succeeded at all, because in my mind, as much as, you know, I use Facebook and rely on Facebook for a lot of things, their brand is a problem for a lot of people. And so, so it's a good question. The, the, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone succeed at what they were trying to do. There, there's, in, in Asia, there's a few, there's a few companies um, that have created pretty popular launchers that are sort of independent. They, they sort of take over the uh, the home screen and let you launch your apps in, in, in unique ways. But none of them has really gained mainstream penetration. So the the question of what they can could have done is 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 a challenging one. But knowing that they could have done research before they launched home to discover if this was something that people would have wanted and then decided if they should have launched it or not. That was, you know, actually how to build the right product is a bigger question that um, I, re- I don't really know the answer to in their case. But they definitely could have, you know, reached out to their to the user base on Android and to some segments of them and interviewed them and done, and done a lot more in-depth work on what the biggest frustrations with the existing Android operating system were when it comes to the social interactions, when it comes to access to social features and messaging and built something that really addressed those problems. But I don't know, you know, I don't know what those problems are, so I can't say what they, what the product they should have built should be. Yeah, but that, that's what I was expecting to you uh, from an answer perspective okay. is that when you start, I, I think sometimes when you start with a product in mind and want to push that to your audience, you, you, you make the risk of not matching this product with the problems and the, the most painful problems and the most painful needs that those people have. And so I think this is probably what happened there. But you're right in saying that you want to criticize companies. This is what this wasn't really what I was expecting. It's it's really sure. well, yeah. Give us example of 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 good companies who, are, who failed because because of weak uh, marketing foundation. So moving on to another thing you've t- you you said in your article, you're basically saying that from a, a survey that was made by maybe the Y Combinator or another another uh, organism that around forty percent of the fatal issues that you know startup have that lead to their you know failure are based on weak marketing foundations um, which is an interesting stat so what best practices in the field of marketing you think are just plain wrong and, and companies have to stop doing okay so let's let's pull back a little bit the uh, the, the, the survey in question was actually a survey it was a research done by a company called CB insights which basically is a research company that tries to get as much intelligence as they can on private companies that don't release their financials and looks for as many other metrics as they can to understand the big trends and sort of successes or not of private companies without public reporting. And what they did was they analyzed about 101 blog posts written by founders of companies that had completely failed, startups that had completely failed. You know, that, that's sort of a thing that people like to do is usually on Medium these days, but, in, you know, on their own blog sometimes they write, you know, what we did wrong, why our product failed, why our startup failed, and, you know, what we do differently next time. And so they took 101 of those posts and analyzed them. And from that, they sort of extracted the recurring themes and ranked them and created, the top, created a list of the top 20. And the top 20 weren't, in, weren't mutually exclusive. So, you know, one theme could show up three times in an article and they'd include that in the list. And among that, you know, they, none of those were actually citing weak marketing foundations. There was only one, and it was like the fourth or fifth that said bad marketing. But when you looked at actually the list of the reasons people, of reasons startup failed, the number one one was that no market need, right? We built a product and the market didn't want it. And to me, that is basically saying we didn't actually do marketing at all well. We didn't, we didn't know what the market wanted before we built the product. We built the product before we knew what the market wanted. That, to me, is the ultimate marketing failure, is building a product that no one wants. And among the many other reasons that were cited, they 
either were directly aris- arose from that fundamental issue of we don't understand the market, we don't even know what the market wants, you know, we don't know what the market values. One of them was pricing issues and and um, and profitability issues. Another one was business model issues. So we might have built the product that got traction, but there was no way to monetize it. Those are all things that tied directly to the question of fundamental marketing foundations. And to me, marketing foundations is not also, by the way, just building something people want. It's that that is the foundation of it, one of the foundations. But it's also building something people want that you can make a business out of. Because you know you can build, you know, you can make a service that like you know, gives people free cars. I mean, that's not really logistically possible, but let's just say hypothetically, you could give people a bunch of free stuff and it costs you a ton of money to deliver it. But if there's no ever way to generate a profit on it, you know, you're basically going to, your business is going to collapse. And you saw a lot of that happen with the on-demand, the on-demand area in the last year, in the last year, in 2016 and 2015, when these companies were basically selling $20, they were paying, their customers were paying them $20 for $40 worth of services or $10 for $20 worth of services. And what venture capitalists like to call unit economics, we're never going to add up. And so that's that's part of it too. Making sure that your business model, um, that, that the thing you're building, even if people want it, will actually um, be create a sustainable business at the at a price point that sustains you. That's connected to marketing in in in, in not as direct ways, but in a, in very adjacent, relevant ways. But this point, I think, is is still linked to the se- to the first one, which is if you don't identify painful enough problems or painful enough needs, therefore people are not going to be willing to pay for it enough, you know, to sustain a business, right? So exactly. I think, yeah, if you find out that pro- some people have problems or needs, but they're not that 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 painful, then yeah, it's very difficult to make a business out of it. But I think yeah, the more painful it is, the easier it is to build a business around it, right? I would agree. Yes. Yeah. And a good example of that from a failure, um, for, for recent failure, um, there's a couple of home cleaning companies. One is still around. One of them failed after raising $40 million of capital or so. And they, you know, they, they, their hypothesis was that, you know, the existing home cleaning services were too expensive and, and too slow and, and all of this. And they basically created an on-demand marketplace for um, getting your house clean. And it turns out that, A, people, the average person isn't willing to pay that much to get their house cleaned. And, B, they don't do it that often. Even if they would, even if they, even if it would be nice to have a cleaner house um, more regularly, and I definitely feel like I wouldn't mind if someone came to my house once or twice a month to clean up because it, you know it takes time that I would rather not spend mopping and sweeping and vacuuming. But it's not such a painful problem that I'm going to spend a hundred bucks a month on it, right? It's it's uh, unless I feel like that that is not an issue for me, you know. It's a, it's a nice to have, and and exactly as you said, you mentioned it without maybe realizing, but you say you wouldn't mind. But yeah. I wouldn't mind. It's not a painful thing. It's, it's not like yeah, totally. I need it so much. I'm like I can't live without this service exactly and there's something i wanted to touch on before actually going to the step-by-step because i know you've developed okay. a methodology that that could help uh, tech uh, companies to to do marketing better and grow better so we'll go uh, through that in the next few minutes but going back a little bit into this bias i think what's interesting about the origin of this bias against marketing is all the you know the madman philosophy the fact that you're you know selling at the expense of customers, as you explained in your article. So you're selling cigarettes, you're selling alcohol. Alcohol is a drug that is much more, you know, uh, dangerous than weed uh, or like other drugs that are still illegal in a lot of places, right? And so, and pharma, pharma companies as well is another example to me that, you know, marketers are employing those businesses to sell stuff at the expense of customers, for sure, because it's proven to be, you know, it's not good for you. Right at the end of the day. Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on what it is, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, cigarettes. Yeah, cigarettes alcohol, is a good example. 
you know. Yeah, it's not, not much debatable, not to spend on that, right? And you're making a good point, which is like those type of industries, industries outside of tech, are more are willing to pay marketers way more and offer like bigger benefit and don't have that much of a bias than tech, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting point because when you see the man-man philosophy and all, this is, I think, still why a lot of tech leaders are, are thinking of marketing. They still see us in suit and trying to sell, you know, something that doesn't exist to, to somebody who doesn't need it. Uh, there's actually this image, don't know if it's in this sm- small cartoon, where somebody throw a brick into somebody's window with a note on it that says, do you need window repair? <laughs> Call us now or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, so to your point, you know, cigarettes are a complicated one because that has a lot, that has a lot of legacy that goes back. You know, people people actually did want cigarettes for a while, but it is also the case that you know at various times in cigarette trajectory, they were facing scrutiny that their uh, cigarettes caused cancer, that they were bad for health. And one of the things, you know, a good example of this was the creation of the Marlboro Man in the fifties or sixties. I think it was the fifties or sixties. And you know, this was when. The, the first sort of wave of scares about the connection between smoking cigarettes and destruction, destroys lung cancer and health were coming up. And the solution the cigarettes came up with, the cigarette companies came up with, were filtered cigarettes. And filtered cigarettes were basically um, perceived as something that women smoked. They had been marketed aggressively to women as something more delicate than a raw, unfiltered cigarette in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And then in the 50s, as the health crisis, the health issues were ramping up, as, as, the, as the health scares were ramping up, they... You know, the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies realized that they could promote cigarettes as a sort of healthier, safer alternative um, to raw, unfiltered cigarettes. But that men, since they've spent so much time marketing and, and marketing unfiltered cigarettes to women, there was this perception that filtered cigarettes were feminine and for women. And so the solution to that was the Marlboro Man, which at first, you know, the, the Marlboro Man eventually became that iconic cowboy. But originally it was actually a whole campaign of people who were, quote unquote, manly men. You know, there was like John Glenn sort of the or Chuck Yeager or, you know, these sort of people that that sort of the average working stiff guy dreams about being right. Like these test pilots and these astronauts and these cowboys and these movie stars. I think Marlon Brando was one of the Marlboro men and associating filtered cigarettes with manliness via the Marlboro man campaign was, you know, and, and there's no evidence. There's actually evidence that filtered cigarettes don't reduce the impacts of health uh, of, of uh, tobacco in some cases. They actually make it worse because you smoke more to get the same nicotine. You know, they're basically creating this this image of manliness and and, and of cool and of and a desire, uh, you know, a desired trait of the fifty of the fifties and sixties man, and aligning it with the idea that smoking filtered cigarettes is a good idea. And you know, the consequences to people's health and lives and the entire system as a whole in terms of healthcare costs is extraordinary. So you know, the idea that the, the idea that the marketing uh, profession is built on an ability to lie, which is what Larry Page allegedly told a group of marketer, Google's first marketers, is not completely unfounded. But to counter that, I'm not sure, I think it was Claude Hopkins, but I might be wrong about that. It might actually have been Gary Halbert or one of those guys. In the, in the 30s and 40s, 20s and 30s, Americans in general did not brush their teeth. And dental hygiene was an emerging problem, especially considering the, the rise of industrial food and, and white bread and things like that. Um, people's teeth were falling out and Gum disease was a raging problem, and teeth, people's breath was terrible, and their mouths were disgusting. And the initial attempts to get them to brush their teeth were a total failure, right? And um, along comes one of the world's best direct response markets. I don't know, I don't remember if it was Claude Hopkins or one of his peers, but he basically created the campaign to align toothbrush, teeth brushing with you know better smelling breath, better 
sociability, more success in life. And over, like not overnight, but over the next five to 10 years, teeth brushing in America became a standard behavior, you know, and say what you will about sort of the, the, the floor, the toxins around fluoride and sort of all that stuff. Um, the, it is unquestionably true that Americans dental hygiene and health dramatically changed as a result of that campaign. And so the point is that marketing is one of those dual use technologies to use the term back from the invasion of Saddam Hussein, invasion of Iraq under Bush. It's one of those things that can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And it all depends on the context to determine which con- which which side it gets used for. Yeah, which is so the, the basically the difference is the dark, dark side of marketing and the light side of marketing. And the, yeah. As you said before, yes, people needed cigarettes. They had a need for it because, you know, nicotine is highly addictive. But the second question I think marketers need to ask themselves when they are about to go to work for a company is to ask whether the solution is harmful as well, whether the solution is actually something that's going to cause harm to people. And I think this is what marketers should ask themselves because, you know, at the end of the day, we are here just once, you know, on earth and let's to make a good impact, not not spend our time marketing a product that we know is not good for people, right? Um, so let's moving on to the step by step thing uh, and sure. the methodology you've developed. So we are in the light side of marketing, right? We are we are here to sell uh, to help people understand the key problems they have and, and to find the right solution for for those problems. So how do you go about helping a tech com- tech company in particular? To align their team, uh, to launch great products, and to create to create growth that lasts for uh, for a long time. So, step one: What do you do? Okay, so so actually, it, it, a lot of it is contingent. A lot of the actual steps are contingent on the stage of the market and the stage of the product itself. So, let's just pull a concrete example. Let's say you have achieved basic product market fit, right? You have you have a product that has some traction. You're not you're not starting from scratch here. You're not um you're not either building a new product from the beginning and deciding what to build. You actually have a product. It has, you know, users and it has users or customers. Those users are customers. We're talking about SaaS here, so they're paying and they're not churning after three months, right? So you have some initial signs, I mean, let's say 10 paying customers, 100 paying customers, depending on the price point, that there is a market for your product and that that, mar- that product is delivering value. Let's just take that as an example, right? There's a lot of different things you do if you don't have, to, if you don't have product market fit yet and you don't know what, what to build to get there. But let's just start with the, with the assumption that you have some traction and you really want to, um, and you really want to uh, know what features and products to build next to expand that traction, how to market it more effectively, get more customers, convert more people on your website, convert more of those people who convert into leads, into sales, et cetera. Um, let's, just, so let's just take that as an example as a baseline. Is that cool? Sure. Okay. So, the, the, and, and, and there are, by the way, there are a lot of SaaS companies that have gotten to this point without investing heavily in um, their marketing, copywriting, content, or whatever, right? But, um, but, but once you are ready to sort of turn on the gas, once you're ready to take that initial traction and turn it into something big, the first step is to really understand customers, buyers, and users. So, so it also depends on your model. Are you selling to the enterprise with a sales team or are you selling freemium? But let's just take the, 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 uh, the enterprise sale or the, or the sort of more, the more, the more structured sale. Who are the people that, A, are coming back to your product every day or, or all the time and have stuck around for the longest, right? Um, how can you identify, how do you, the first step is to identify those people um, and hopefully you have installed some analytics or intercom or whatever that enables you to 
create a segment of the people who are coming back every day and have been around for three to six months or whatever. Identify, create a segment of those people using your analytics tool. It could be mixed panel. It could be um, intercom, whatever. And talk to them, right? Actually get in touch with them. Ideally, get outside of the building and go face-to-face if you can and actually have a sit-down conversation with them and ask them a set of questions that are designed to extract why they brought your product, what problems they were experiencing before, and and what what tangible, concrete, ideally metrics-driven results have result have, have they received as a result of using your product regularly every day for the last three to six months? What has fundamentally changed? And then go deeper than that, right? So the first level is like the business impact that, that your product has created. Then um, you want to understand how that product became adopted inside the organization. So um, if it is a product that requires multiple people's buy-in to either use or, or um, create, how did it spread from that first person who decided this was a good idea to the, to the, uh, to the rest of the company? And if it's a freemium product that's self-service, that, that's a much more you know, organic process. If it's a sales team, you know, there, there's, there's customer success, there's all that stuff. So um, really understanding who those people are um, and the process that made your product successful in their organization and documenting it thoroughly is sort of the, st- the first step. Why you got traction, why you succeeded. And then looking at that information and, and, you know, these face-to-face conversations, having 20 or 30 of them is, a, is, is sort of a good, is a good place, is a good start, just the face-to-face stuff. More broadly, there's a bigger tactic, which is if your market is big enough, if you have, you know, five to 10,000 addressable customer segment, uh, customers, actually surveying that market, creating a survey that is designed to understand both the demographics of that market, the demographics and psychographics of that market, and most importantly, the language they use to describe their number one biggest challenge in regards to X. And I got this uh, methodology from a guy named Ryan Levesque, who is a very successful information product marketer who created something called the Ask Method. He wrote a book about it, and he also has a course that teaches people how to instrument it. And the Ask Method is basically a way of creating what he calls buckets. And this is true for, you know, not er- most companies, especially SaaS companies, aren't selling to ex- exactly one type of person. There might be four or five different problems or types of people that they address. And being able to communicate to those people in different ways is incredibly important because a mess, you know, to make this concrete, there's a company, Clearbit. Clearbit is a good example of this. Clearbit is an API for enriching um, email addresses with a lot more information. So if you, if you, if you have like a freemium product, you can call their API to add, you know, someone just gives you their email address. Clearbit will help you add like their name, their, their, their full name, their company, their title, all that information that Clearbit has through its API. And you can do that with literally an API call. The problem, of course, is that, you know, the product is valuable to salespeople, it's valuable to marketing people, not just the developers who can, who can instrument it, who can communicate with an API. And so Clearbit has this um, three or four different types of customers that might get value from their product. And the messages that are going to resonate with a developer who can write to an API, a marketer who wants to get more intelligence on their leads, and a salesperson who wants to tell, who wants to close more deals are very different. And the way Clearbit solved this is they use their own tool. So when someone, you know, instead of instead of having like a eight part form to like ask for name, title, and all that, all they ask for is your email address. And they use their own tool and an email marketing tool called um, I think Customer IO or Vero. It's one of those two. To you know, as soon as someone fills out their email address, Clearbit automatically enriches their data and then sends them an onboarding campaign based on their job title and role and company size. And that onboarding email campaign 
is specifically every word of that onboarding email campaign or most of the words of that onboarding email campaign are specifically tailored to address the specific audience that that signed up. So if a marketer, non-technical marketer signs up, they talk about the ability to upload a spreadsheet and get it enriched immediately. Or they talk about their Google Sheets plugin that um, that doesn't require any technical sophistication to use. If it's a developer, they talk about the API and all that kind of thing. Does that make sense? So knowing your, so, so to, to reduce that much more distinctly, doing whatever it takes, and that could be a combination of surveys and customer interviews and ideally both, to understand as, in as much depth as possible the sort of environment, the needs, the challenges of the people in your market, and then writing stuff, literally the copy on your website, the copy on your email campaigns, the blog posts you choose to write that help them solve their problems is a major thing to do. And, and they're specific problems, right? Because one big mistake a lot of, especially early stage SaaS companies make, is they think companies buy products, right? And yes, that's sort of true. There is a buying, there is a buying decision, especially at the higher price points. But the fact is that those companies are made up of real human beings, and those real human beings have goals, problems, challenges, needs, secret needs that they don't talk about. And the more you can address all of that stuff um, on an individual level, the, mu- the more effective everything you do is going to be, everything from the features you develop to the marketing collateral you produce. So step one, identify your best customer. Step two, identify their, like, their problems, their most painful problems, and, and what problems solve are being solved by your product. And step yep. three, personalize your funnel so much that every single buyer persona or, 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 or avatar, as a, another podcast guest was using as a word, build every a funnel for each of them, basically, and answer their specific needs. Totally. And, there's sort of an, and that, can, that can be a lot of work. I, I like how you distilled that very distinctly, yes. Um, it doesn't have to be your, yeah, your best customer, your most successful customer. And that's, that's when you already have customers, right? And if you're trying to move into a new market, it's a similar process, but you're not, you're not using your own customer base. You're reaching out through your network or you're creating a lead magnet, you know, a piece of content that you give away exchange for an email address and following that, that when they sign up, instead of a thank you page saying, now go to your inbox and click the subscription link to, to accept your subscription, you, ought, you, you ask them to fill out a survey. And that survey contains one open-ended question, which is, when it comes to X, where X is the big strategic challenge you solve, the big challenge you solve, what is the number one biggest problem you're facing right now? And that's an open-ended question, and you want to look at, you know, and you want people to fill out those long, and then the rest are sort of demographic or, or infographic or, or psychographic questions. What is your gender, if, it's a, if, if, your product, if that matters to your product? What is your title? What is your uh, company's, you know, if it, what is your company's annual revenue? Whatever, right? Whatever will help you align those long form, those, those open-ended questions with, um, demographic answers. And I think that's a very interesting point, the open-ended question uh, with the open-ended answer, because if you do not ask questions that are open-ended to customers or, or potential customers, what you are probably doing is you buy it, like you probably create a bias and you probably, you know, if you give them four options to answer into what is your biggest problem, you run the risk of having none of those four problems being a good answer, but people will just select one because, yeah, it's good enough, right? So, I think we are a big fan of open-ended answers uh, questions as well, and we use almost only open-ended uh, questions uh, unless we ask for demographic uh, information. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a lot of value regarding the way people talk about your mess- about your product in their own words, about their key problems, and the way they explain them. So it genuinely fuels your marketing much more than basic market research by googling stuff and trying to discover problems this way yep 
And, and you know, it, obviously, these things all depend on the phase of your market, right? If you're entering an existing market, it's one thing where you can actually do some Google keyword research to see what people are searching for because that, that demand already exists. But if you're in a new market where people don't even know that they need the solution, they, don't, they have the problem, but they don't know the solution yet. Um, they might not even know the problem they have, but they do have the problem. Then Google searches aren't going to tell you anything. You know, the only way to really learn anything is to both talk to people and observe them. There's a woman named, I think, Amy Hoy, who, uh, who talks about these, who takes an anthropological perspective on customer development, you know, as opposed to the lean startup methodology, which is really about interviewing customers, building minimum viable products. She talks about observing people in their natural habitat. So basically going to someone's office and watching them, sort of shadowing them for a day, asking questions as it is, but mostly being a neutral observer and watching what they do, because what they do and what they say they do can be very different things. Uh, I, as soon as you said that, I was starting to picture, you know, the David uh, Attenborough, uh, yeah, like the, exactly. the, you know, yeah. um, like this marketer in his natural life, yeah, exactly, is, uh, feeding himself, yeah. yeah, feeding himself broccoli, and yeah, yeah. okay, uh, <laughs> that's really kale. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's really, uh, that's an interesting methodology, and I think at the end of the day, if you boil down marketing to the first principles that we discussed before, it's usually the same methodology. You know, start with the customer, start with the people, and and the rest should follow more easily than you know, if you don't, don't focus on them first. Um, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next five or 10 years? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So, so they're, they're, you know, they're in the next five or 10 years, let's see. So the, the discipline of marketing is getting more complicated, not less. The number, the, the, the range of tech, the, the array of technologies and tools and services to use. Now machine learning is starting to come into it. Being having at least some basic technical grounding. Now, I don't write code. I can mess with HTML and CSS, but I don't mess with any of the you know any of the, any of the actual you know Python or um, any of that stuff. But being able to speak a little bit, you know, understand some of the technical concepts a little bit is valuable. Being able to communicate a little bit with developers. You don't have to be able to write code to be a great marketer. Now, that can be valuable, and there is there there are some people who there's a, there's a there's a course out there called Become a Technical Marketer for people that have that inclination that want to learn how to um, you know, write write uh, SQL queries and and write algorithms and write scraping algorithms and things like that, and that can be very valuable on the sort of growth tactical side of things. You know, the people who who want to really focus on demand gen and growth, some of those more to automate a lot of that stuff. Technical skills can be very valuable on the sort of product marketing and content marketing side. Being able to tell stories, to understand user psych, to understand human psychology, um, and and really be able to ask the right questions and listen. Listening is obviously a really undervalued and underused skill. In, in, in the world where, you know, me, me, me is very important. And I am guilty of that as much as anyone. I am, I've had to work really hard on not talking over people and, and actually listening to what they say and giving them a chance to talk. And also just like being really receptive to what they say. That, that, that's been a years long process for me. Again, coming from, coming from my conversations with my father as a kid. But listening and, and, and turning, that, turning what you hear into valuable insights. And that can be, and, you know, some of it is big data stuff. Some of it is um, literally the hands-on qualitative stuff where you talk to people and, you know, one of the, one of the big things, uh, this is where listening comes in, and I, and I hinted at this earlier, is being able to understand people's secret desires, right? They're sort of like the big, the sort of the top line stuff, which is, you know, for a marketer, I want more leads, I want more sales, I want, to make, I want, I want more uh, customers, I want, I, want, I want my site to convert better, you know, solving those problems and giving and, and speaking to that stuff is, is great. But getting below that to understand really why they want those things, right? Why does... X marketing person at Y company wants a tool that will help them make it easier for them to get more customers, right? And, you know, 
that that can be very individual. But like you know, just to give an example, they you know, you, there's a whole story there, right? That you that, that if you that if you just look at the metrics and the KPI stuff, you will miss like. The, this marketer, you know, grew up in a in a poor family and is extremely worried about their financial security and and uh, and their job stability and 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 they are there's this deep innate fear that like if they don't do a good job they're going to be on the chopping block and if they're on the chopping block um, and they lose their job their finances are going to be bad and they're going to end up they and their children are going to end up in the same place as they were when they were kids and so there's this deep seated fear and. If you understand that fear and, and sort of go below that, like I need to convert more people on my website, that if I don't convert more people on my website, I'm not a valuable part of my company. And if I'm not a valuable part of my company, I'm either going to get fired or not advance in my career. Um, and advancing in my career is really important to me because, you know, financial security and control are really important to me, all of those things, right? If you don't understand the sort of what the, the five and six levels beneath the sort of rational answers, the marketing you do and the products you build will not be as fundamentally necessary. And, you know, and this is where this is where the good side of marketing comes. You don't want to take that knowledge and use it to manipulate people. You want to take that knowledge and use it to help people. So that means like in on the content side, producing content about being a great marketer, working with your team, um, making marketing is an essential part of the organization, you know, advocating for um, a, a growth program, a conversion rate optimization program how to manage those soft skills and advocate for the value of the stuff you're doing, right? The things that really address, help people achieve their most fundamental goals for themselves. That is what I consider great, good light side marketing. Um, Dan, you've been absolutely awesome. You said so much uh, good stuff in this episode. I think people will have to listen to it a few times and take notes. <laughs> But anyway, most of the key points will be in the, in the, in the notes in the episode. Where can listeners connect with you, find more about you, read more about, you know, your views on, on marketing? Sure. So right now, my website for SaaS marketers is called Threadling, and that's T-H-R-E-A-D-L-I-N-G.com. And um, I have a blog there. I'm, I'm, I'm updating it occasionally. And uh, I also offer a um, video that I'm redoing right now about a framework I've developed called the Foundational Story Framework. And that is about developing a lot of these sort of intel this insight on um, the that i talked about on this call sort of the key motivations of your audience uh, of your market um or, or your different markets um the 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 sort of top line motivations the 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 under the secret motivations and turning those that intelligence and that understanding um about who your most excited responsive customers will be and what motivates them into a series of three stories that you use to align your team Build products that they really that, the, that your customers really want. Um, prioritize your your features and products really well, and then um, communicate about them and grow them really sustainably. And it's three different stories that you use to do all of those things. Um, and getting those stories right is the first step of that. The second step is rolling it out, and the third step is testing and optimizing all of it. We'll uh, definitely share this video as well on the episode notes, so people can uh, can check it out. Uh, Dan, thank you so much once again for your time. Thank you, Louis. It was great. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. 
We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet. And we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.